Good afternoon. I'm Nell Painter, um, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the second and last session of our conference in honor of the work of Claudia Tate. Um, before I introduce our speakers, I just want to say a couple of words. Uh, Claudia and Beverly Bruce, who's here, and Nellie McKay, who's there, and I were all in graduate school together. <laughs> and um, even then, when in our callow youth, Claudia was distinguished for her self-discipline and her ability. You've heard a lot about the work she's done as a scholar, but she also raised two magnificent sons. So I think we should give her also an additional... And while I'm speaking of family, let me just say that one of the things that uh, I've always admired about Claudia is her steadiness. Uh, many of you here, most of you here, I suppose all of you here, uh, are familiar with that sense of walking uphill or pushing the large ball or having the weights around your ankle and keeping going when the whole world and the walls, when the air seem to say to you, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> or when everybody seems to be speaking a different language and you come out of meetings and you think, <laughs> and the temptation is to say, I think I'll just lie down. <laughs> and to keep, to keep working, to keep getting up, to keep working, but to keep working in so original and creative a fashion in that kind of a context speaks very well, as you've been hearing and you will hear more, to Claudia's own strengths. But I want to point out something else. You, both her parents are here. And as someone who is also blessed with very supportive parents, I just want to say that without parents like Claudia's, I suspect that she could not have persevered and always kept that originality of thought that we so celebrate today. So let's give her parents a round. Now, this session is also on Claudia's work. It's called Gender, Culture, and Psychoanalysis. And we're going to go till 4.30. And then at 4.30, we're going to have a chance for personal remembrances and reflections. We've received uh, in writing several comments, people who were not able to be here, but who wanted to express their own personal appreciation. So we'll have time for that after this session. Uh, today, we ha this afternoon, we have speakers representing uh, two different generations. We have uh, Mary Helen Washington, who's going to begin. Mary Helen Washington helped create the field of black women's studies and black women's literature with her groundbreaking books, First Black-Eyed Susans and Midnight Birds, Stories by and About Black Women, a book that first came out in 1976. 
a quarter of a century ago, Mary Helen. <laughs> for I'm which, trying not to even pay no, 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 no. For which we also need to give Mary Helen a round of applause. For being old? This book not only came out in 1976, it's in its third edition. Yes, it is. Thank you. Mary Helen also did Invented Lives, Narratives of Black Women, 1860 to 1960. Also, Memory of Ken, Stories About Family by Black Writers. And then, Impress, Desegregating the 1950s, Impress? Coming. Forthcoming. Forthcoming. (laughs) Forthcoming. Desegregating the 1950s, African-American writing and activism in the Cold War. Uh, Mary Helen uh, teaches in the English department at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm not going to give you her honors because everybody here is abundantly honored. I just would like you to know some of her books. Um, The second speaker is a younger scholar, Maurice Wallace, who has already made tremendous waves and left people wishing he were with them all over the East Coast, and those he's with at Duke are delighted. His first book is Impress, uh, Constructing the Black Masculine Identity and Ideality in African-American Men's Literature and Culture, 1775 to 1996. And he's currently at work on a book entitled Hostile Witness, James Baldwin as Artist and Outlaw. Our third speaker is Barbara Johnson of Harvard University. She began her career in French, Défiguration du langage poétique, la seconde révolution baudelairienne. Wow. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Also from the 70s, but not quite at the quarter century. And then A Critical Difference, Essays in the Contemporary Rhetoric of Reading. A World of Difference, The Wake of Deconstruction, The Feminist Difference, Literature, Psychoanalysis, Race, and Gender, and she has two book projects, Persons and Things, and Moses and Multiculturalism. So we'll start with Mary Helen Washington. Good afternoon. You have a handout. Tell that this is a teacher. Some of you have a handout. We don't. I'll give you mine. You won't need this until the end of the talk. This accompanies the videotape that I'm going to show at the end of my talk, and I'll explain, I'll describe the videotape before I show it, because it's seven minutes long, and it goes very, very fast, and you have to watch it quickly. So I'll leave my copy with the scholars. Um, I go back with Claudia so far that I can no longer remember exactly how we met. But I have a vague recollection of something that may now be an apocryphal story, of being summoned out to the Detroit Metro Airport to talk to Claudia in, in, in the late 1970s, I believe, when she was working on black women writers at work. 
So far, am I correct, Claudia? <laughs> All of you who know Claudia know that she is perfectly capable of flying into an airport for the purposes of talking about her work and perfectly capable of getting a complete stranger to drive out to the airport, <laughs> uh, confer with her about a book. So in many ways, this essay um, that I'm presenting today about black women and work owes a great deal to Claudia, not only to the work itself, but to her example of a black woman scholar at work, determined, disciplined, and dedicated, and perhaps most important for me at this point in my scholarly life, a scholar who took bold steps and made bold statements. So I'm calling it Claudia and I a sort of intellectual reunion. Several years ago, I began working on an essay that was prompted by this nagging question, why can't the work of professional black women be portrayed? That question was partly a reaction to black contemporary films in which black middle class women are represented nearly always as vain, materialistic, selfish, and as betrayers of the black community. The most egregious examples perhaps being, and I'm sure you could choose your own, the 1975 film Mahogany, directed by Barry Gordy, and the 1997 film uh, Soul Food, directed by Forrest Whitaker. You remember what happens to the Vanessa Williams character, Terry, in that film. As a highly successful corporate lawyer, she is the one sister out of three unable to hold on to her husband or to produce children. A husbandless, childless woman, distrusted by her sisters and unwilling and unable to carry on family and community traditions. At the end of Mahogany, at the height of her great triumph in the world of European high fashion, Tracy, Diana Ross, Here's the warning words of her old boyfriend, Brian, Billy D. Williams, in her ears. And she's walking out on the stage, and the applause is deafening. But the only words she hears are Brian's words saying, nothing, nothing. You are nothing without the man you love. Oh. After, <laughs> this, uh, moment of, after this moment of epiphany, Tracy leaves Europe to marry Brian, uh, returns to the black community to help him in his work as community organizer. Also makes a public vow um, to, um, to, to be his helpmate. As long as a woman is working class, she can be portrayed as loyal and admirable, and most importantly, her work can be portrayed. But a black woman who achieves success in the professional world is, in current popular culture, dangerous, disloyal, and destructive. Unlike 19th century texts which could mobilize middle class status for racial uplift, 20th century texts represent black people's unease and anxiety about middle class status. As Valerie Smith points out in her essay on black men and work, middle class black men almost always have to perform some act of solidarity to show that they are down with the brothers. <laughs> For black women, that rupture is much harder to repair. More often than black men and more often than women of other ethnic groups, black women are expected to expiate for their deviance in choosing careers and or becoming successful. 
For this meditation, I turn to the fiction of Paul Marshall, precisely because all of her main characters, nearly all of her main characters, are middle class, often professional women, and are portrayed complexly and with respect. I found, but I found myself grappling with the same questions that motivated Claudia's psychoanalysis in black novels, an increasing discomfort with the tendency in Marshall's fiction to resolve the tensions over success and ambition in the lives of her upwardly mobile women characters by marginalizing their work and making them community workers and political activists. What I see in Marshall's fiction, just as Claudia maintains in psychoanalysis, uh, I'm shortening the title of her book, is an opposition between a public racial text and a private subtext of individual desire, an acceptable surface uh, racial narrative and a narrative of ambition and a desire for professional success and status, which had to be subordinated to the demands of the racial text as though those desires do indeed engender, as Claudia writes, turmoil, disturbance, and threat vague feelings of emotional discomfort, anxiety, shame, and guilt. When I began reading reading Claudia's book for this conference, I affectionately call it Claudia's psycho book, (laughs) I realized that Claudia and I were proceeding along parallel lines, asking similar questions about the ways that desire is marginalized as a critical category in African-American canons. Claudia made explicit what I had been groping for in my essay, that Marshall camouflages her women characters' ambitions, assigning them race work instead, a stage meaning that points up some threat posed by these desires. The taming of the ambitious middle-class woman happens in several of Marshall's texts, but I've chosen to focus mainly on a minor story by Marshall or what Claudia calls the anomalous narrative because these texts, she says, are more likely to express fantasies that refuse the obligations of racial protocols. Where I depart from Claudia in this essay is that I think that this this discomfort and disguise over race is there first in the text and in the writer not just in the tendencies of the literary critic. I think these fictional texts, both unconsciously and deliberately, steer us in the direction of the racial story, and and perhaps because we are all troubled by our failures to be good race men and women, we consent to be driven there. I've chosen the short story, Rena, uh, published first in Harper's Magazine in 1962, um, because it's part fiction, part, part autobiography, part essay, a hybrid form that Marshall rarely writes in that I think allows her to be both self-revelatory and self-disguised. I focus on Rena because desire and anxiety about work, professional status, and privilege surface here in overt ways as well as in subtexts and disguises, almost as if Marshall's subconscious was working to both suppress and expose them. Um, Because I'm I'm treading very lightly on the grounds of psychoanalytic theory because I'm not trained in that field, and also because unlike all of Claudia's subjects, um, Paul Marshall is very much alive. (laughs) Being very cautious here. There was 
Another reason for my choice of this story, my own desire for a middle-class professional woman character who, like myself, struggled with work issues. I'm just going to give you a slight synopsis of this story for those of you who don't know it. There are three characters in Rena, the narrator, Paul Lee, spelled P-A-U-L-I-E. Paul's name is spelled P-A-U-L, but pronounced Paul like a man. That's a quote from her. Uh, her friend, Rena, and Rena's ex-husband, Dave, all of whom could easily be read as aspects of Marshall herself. Pauly, like Marshall, is a writer from Brooklyn with two published books. By 1962, Marshall had published Brown Girl, Brownstones, and Soul Clap Hands and Sing. Rena and Polly are West Indian, both graduated from one of the free city colleges in New York in the late 50s, as did Marshall. The third character, Dave, is a photographer struggling with issues in his career that are similar to the ones Marshall, at age 33, was facing in her own writing career. When Rena and Polly meet at, again after 20 years at the wake of a woman they both call Aunt Vi, they spend an entire night catching up on the past, with Polly mostly listening as Rena recounts the past 20 years of her life. Though both women have resisted taking what Polly calls safe jobs as school teachers and social workers, it is clearly Rena who has been the radical, cutting her hair in an afro wearing African dresses to accentuate her dark skin, leaving home in the 1950s to live on her own, becoming involved in an interracial affair. In her most political period, she is suspended from school for demonstrating in left-wing groups against lynching and against McCarthyism. After working for a brief stint as a welfare investigator, she lands a job with a small progressive magazine. So far, all of this could have been taken from a page in Paul Marshall's own life. In the 1950s, she belonged to the left-wing American Youth for Democracy, which replaced the Young Communist League as the uh, party's youth movement. She was in marches and demonstrations during that period, and in the 1960s, a strong supporter of a militant black cultural and political nationalism. Nearly three-quarters of the narrative is devoted to Rena and Polly. But once Rena begins to talk about her marriage, the narrative unexpectedly shifts away from the two women to Rena's ex-husband Dave and his struggles to be a successful photographer in New York. Rena tells Polly that throughout their married life, she and Dave lived close to Harlem, refused the bourgeois life, and worked on social and political causes so that, quote, their allegiance reaches directly to all those trapped in Harlem. While this social and political activism seems easy and untroubled, the career conflicts in Dave's life represent some of the most perplexing psychological issues for any artist, especially a black artist. Because of his fear of taking risks, Dave leaves freelancing and takes a secure job with a black magazine where his work consists of photographing, quote, the unrealities of the high society world of the black bourgeoisie. Rena eventually pushes him to open his own studio, to put his experimental work in prestige magazines, and gradually awards and money begin to come in. But Dave is dissatisfied with these lesser rewards because, according to Rena, what he really wants and is unable to admit is, quote, the big, gaudy, commercial success that would dazzle and confound that white world downtown and force it to see him. 
Finally, unwilling to submerge herself in Dave's problems, Rena returns to her old job, and the marriage falls apart under Dave's accusation that she is working only to point up his deficiencies. The similarities between Dave, the photographer, and Paul Marshall are simply stunning. Like Dave, Marshall took a job after college working for a small black magazine, Our World, where for a time she was the food and fashion editor. In the early 1950s, Our World was Ebony's closest competition, prominently displaying the hundreds of pairs of shoes, the swimming pools of black celebrities, and Marshall says she was terrified that she'd end up as a hack writer for this second-rate publication. <laughs> Quote, I went home and started Brown Girl as a kind of antidote to sustain me. Whereas Dave and Rena divorce because he is too diffident to pursue his dreams, the conflict in Marshall's marriage is over her determination to pursue hers. When she began writing Brown Girl, Marshall was a young married woman, about 26, living in suburban St. Albans, working for Our World during the day and at night on her first novel. While she is writing her second book, Soul Clap Hands, just after the birth of her first and only child, the conflict between her writing and her husband's idea of her role as wife and mother began to surface. And this is taken from an interview that she did with Alexis DeVoe in Essence magazine, I think it was in 1979. She says, it was an easy book to write, but it was also difficult in the sense that I just had a baby. And even though my first husband liked the fact that I was a writer, he couldn't quite reconcile himself to the hard work involved. He objected to the fact that I was away from the house working on the book. With the money I got from Brown Girl, I went and got help to stay with my son. I went off to a friend's apartment and worked every day on soul clap hands, and there was strong objection to that. Yet I went ahead and did it. There were, he sensed, my need and determination to be my own woman, to do my own thing. I think this is something women have to acknowledge about themselves, their right to fulfill themselves. But in contrast to this portrait of herself as a transgressive woman, writing in spite of her husband's objections, imperiling her marriage, leaving her child while she goes off to write, Marshall makes Rena, at the end of her story, maternal and giving. Her desires turned almost completely toward family and community. The psychological probing in Dave's story now disappears. Rena's job is summed up neatly in the narrative in two simple sentences. Quote, then her job, she was working now as a researcher for a small progressive magazine. In comparison to Dave's story, these passages describing Rena's life are smooth and untroubled, as if all the turbulence and disorder of desire had been skillfully and safely projected onto the absent male character. In contrast to the powerful undercurrents and tensions of Marshall's own work life, Rena's life is described as a seamless integration of family, work, and community. And by the time you get to the end of uh, Rena's section of the story, you hear her talking about 
her commitment to a number of social action groups. She's heading up a delegation of mothers to City Hall to protest conditions in the Harlem schools. She starts a neighborhood organization to fight slumlords. She has plans to take her daughters on a pilgrimage to Washington to fight for more rapid school desegregation. And she is saving to take her children to live in Africa so they will understand black people's true place in history. She says, quote, they must have their identification straight from the beginning, no white dolls for them. Rena has now been reconstituted as an acceptable woman worker. Her desires turn toward her work subordinated to family and community. I maintain that Dave is a disguise for those issues Marshall found too threatening to reveal openly. The tensions between career and marriage and motherhood risk versus security, and perhaps the most unacceptable for a politically committed writer like Marshall, the desire for acceptance, approval, and success in the white world. The repressed story in Rena is the story of writerly ambition for the material, social, and psychological benefits of success in the mainstream, the desire to go beyond marginalization, perhaps even the desire not to be considered a black writer. And I'm going to cut the next part short. I just want to make one reference to her fourth novel, Daughters, because it also opens up with a main character who's at the pinnacle of, of corporate success. She's the director of a Fortune 500 company, um, expected to become the president of the com company. And then almost the, at the beginning of the novel, with all of these signs of success in place, the expensive car, the apartment, the clothes, she abruptly resigns her position, divests herself of all the symbols of that former life and goes to work for a foundation that supports minority causes. It's worth quoting this passage in detail, and this is the passage where she describes this kind of reinvention of herself. Uh, it's worth looking at this whole passage because it's very similar to the rituals of self-abnegation that accompany entrance into a religious order. Um, this is the quote, and I, I want you to listen to this quote for the one inaccurate statement in it. And again, I think this inaccurate statement points to, this inaccuracy points to a, a, another level of tension there. This is Ursa, the main character in Daughters. Um, she gave up the apartment in Park West Village she could no longer afford, sold her furniture, her car, a new Toyota Corolla she had bought only the year before, even sold the better part of her clothes, all those company suits. She didn't even bother to renew her membership at the health club on West End Avenue, where she had gone to swim at least twice a week. And as if reverting to the 60s, even as the 80s were getting underway, she got up one morning, washed and washed her hair, all the TCB relaxer down the drain. Then once it was dry and standing in a bush all over her head, she parted it down the middle, divided the head on either side of the part into two thicknesses, and carefully plaited it to form a single wreath of a braid that started at her forehead, trailed down behind her ears, and was joined at the back. Her hair was just thick and long enough to manage it. It looked, she decided, inspecting herself in the mirror afterward, like the braided loaves of challah bread in the bakeries along Broadway. Anybody who's ever had TCB relaxer in their hair <laughs> knows that you can't wash it out. 
I, I understand Marshall's intentions in making Ursa perform this rejection of middle class privilege. Marshall is almost singular among black writers in her determination to construct women characters who are able to make choices that capitalize on their privileged status and still retain vital and enabling links to their communities. As Mike Davis says in his study of Los Angeles, these entitlements of designer downtown living directly affect the lives of the working classes and the poor. Luxury lifestyles for the middle class, Davis writes, are constructed so that work, recreation, and consumption for the privileged can be free from unwanted ex exposure to the working class and the poor. Lives made possible by new repressions of the space and movement of those, quote, undesirable classes. In remaking Ursa from corporate executive to worker activist, Marshall is contending with this charged political question. Without a concern for distributive justice, what good is personal professional advancement? I must confess that my dissatisfaction with the way these characters are reconstituted as social and community activists is very personal. Black women have always been respected for doing uplift work. Our ambivalence and anxiety are over our careers. Witness the growing number of young women who feel that their good jobs are the cause of their unmarried status or their unsatisfying personal lives. As a university professor, I was for years unable to work well because of the absence of models in my life that would encourage and sustain the work that seemed to take me beyond community and family. I know how working class women work. I belong to Polly and Rena's generation, the first generation in my family to do professional work, and I long for representations of women at work in their professions. I want to see this work described in detail because that is one way of showing respect for the work. I want to know what these women do all day, the various stages of their work, their interactions with colleagues, the times they have to get they're, they're placed in a, in a room at the basement with the beetles running around. Uh, the, their resource, the resources and skills they bring to work, the problems they solve, the decisions they make, their triumphs, failures, and daily struggles. I want to experience black women characters immersed in, proud of, disturbed by, good at, dissatisfied with their work. I once read a news story about a woman scientist who, whenever she made a particularly exciting discovery, skateboarded down the halls of her lab. <laughs> I sit here in front of a computer at six in the morning at a writer's colony where I am the only black person present, and I know that what enables my work, however limited, is the ability to imagine such a woman. I also know that the career-driven, overachieving woman is a status symbol in current middle-class mythology that I must be very careful about buying into the class-based liberal notion that work is liberatory for women rather than another form of control in a modern industrialized society. Middle-class black, middle black woman, after all, is not a stable, fixed category. It is always being constructed and marketed. And to paraphrase Marx, we are always being reshaped to fit the needs of capital. So to find, out, find a way out of this dilemma, I turn once again to Claudia and to Paul Marshall. I return to my contention that the most troubling and vexed questions in Marshall's fiction surface with minor characters that are unable to carry out her political missions. And I return to that shadowy, silent character, Polly, who drifts in and out of the narrative, 
representing the uncertainty and risk of an experimental life. Claudia's contention that, and this is a quote from Claudia's book, that unstated longings and wishes are often inscribed in text in puzzling textual features that seem superfluous to their explicit social uh, content is pertinent here for understanding the, um, the ending of Rena. Despite Marshall's stated goal of keeping these characters connected to their racialized communities, Polly opens the story by admitting that her return to her home uh, of Brooklyn stirs up memories of an unpleasant childhood there. She deliberately comes late to the wake and downs three drinks to prepare for this encounter with the past. She has not held on to people from the past, including her old friend Rena, whom she has not seen in 20 years. And while Rena stays on for the burial, Polly leaves immediately after the wake, taking the train into Manhattan, where we can assume she now lives. Several months after this encounter with Rena, Polly leaves the country, noting in the last two lines of her story that although she invited her old friend to her going away party, Rena did not come. In this casual, almost offhand image of the writer leaving to take an international journey, Polly, the storyteller, the figural representation of Marshall herself, is a figure of contradiction and ambivalence, part of a long tradition of writers who free themselves to critique or and or redefine community, free to retain the most stable or the most tenuous ties to it, free even from time to time to leave it. Here again, in Claudius' terms, we see a life, we see desire as experimentation, a force that creates, fundamentally inventive, the performance of existential freedom. Freed into such ambiguous liberty, Polly's story remains unnarrated and even at this late date in history, perhaps unnarratable. Thank you. clips that I'm going to show from um, Mahogany. From Mahogany, Waiting to Hel Exhale, and Passion Fish. Uh, the first one I've already described, this is uh, Tracy played by Diana Ross at the height of her success as a designer. And if you, uh, you may not be able to hear his voice, but there's Brian in the background saying nothing, nothing. Um, you, you're nothing without the one you love. That's followed quickly by a scene from Waiting to Exhale where we see Savannah, who has this wonderful job as a producer, and for the entire film she does one act of work. She turns on a knob on the TV, and that work is immediately inter uh, interrupted with these phone messages, one of which is from her ex-boyfriend. The third film is Passion Fish, and we see at first um, the character played by uh, Alfre Woodard Chantel going into a, a little restaurant. Um, Sugar comes up to her and tries to get her to go off with him. She finally does. And immediately they go to the racetrack and then back to the stable where he works as a blacksmith. And the reason I included this, this clip was to show you how very subtly and ingeniously, men's work is inserted into films and given a kind of respectful attention. 
Um, he immediately says, I am a blacksmith. So, you know, there's this claim about work. <laughs> that scene is followed by Chantel talking to her employer. This is the paraplegic photographer, May Alice. And they're trying to figure out, well, what should I call you? What is it that you do? You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't. And so we see the absence of a description of her job in that film. So... Mom, the man is married. 
Well, how happy can he be if he went out of his way to find me to get to you, Mama, please? He's not behind. Girl, I'll be so glad when you get up off that high horse. And stop trying to act like you don't need nothing or nobody. Every woman needs a man. And you ain't no exception. Mama, I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. I won't squeeze him back when he hugs me. I will not look him in the eyes. And I'm definitely not going to give him any. <laughs> it's y'all dead who don't have time for me. Sugar. Yeah, you're right. The only thing good is breakfast, and that's long movie. And what are you doing in there? Coffee machine bust over the Come on with me and get you some real food. I have to be somewhere. <laughs> you got time to burn, girl. I seen that old car, your white lady sitting over at the bourgeois brothers garage. <laughs> and them boys are slower than a two-legged mule. <laughs> Can't tell you what to do with the rest of your life, Chantel. But I know you don't want to be spending no five hours over there in here. I'll have you. That day on top is called Mouillon. Made that myself. So all the women up north so hard to get next to was just you. Just me. Hey, Doc. How do you? Say hi, Sean. Hey. Hi. Nice to meet you. Alteen, my first girl. She stays with me most of the summer. You got more? Yeah, by Alteen, Mom. She's my first wife. I had her and my boy, Henri. Henri just got him a scholarship at LSU. Then, with my second, I asked to see and Eugene. They live over by a road bridge now. Don't see nothing. Yeah, let's see. Rosalie. Ah, Rosalie. Yeah. I had Andre, Dealey, and Lorenzo. Lorenzo <laughs> just started up school now. Whose course is this? Man, who gonna put his top stallion on one of my mans? You don't let him do that? I'm getting paid, dog. Got a bloodline history, I ain't got cost me a fortune for that scene. You don't do that, huh? It's like in the cowboy movies. Blacksmith. Black Chantel, do you have to wear that uniform all the time? I thought you wanted it on. It's so nursing. I need a nurse. Not an assistant. Well, I don't know what else to call you. You're not my servant. Thank you. You're not my babysitter or my housekeeper. I'm not your friend. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the eclipse afterwards. Thank you.
I am immensely honored to have been invited to participate in this very brilliant event and further to have been thought of alongside so great a company of teachers and scholars as those with whom I am sharing today's panels. Um, as much as I adore Claudia Tate, if I had known who would also speak today uh, before I eagerly and rather adolescently accepted an invitation without so much as asking, another mind might well have prevailed. However, among my colleagues today, I would like to single out ever so briefly Professor Hazel Carby, the panelist I know best because I formerly held an appointment in African American Studies at Yale under her leadership. Looking back over my short six-year career, during which time I served under seven, I have served under seven chairs in four departments at two institutions, Hazel Carby remains far and away the most competent, visionary, and fearless of them all. This is in no way to overlook the executive superiority of so many others at institutions whose leadership I know only by reputation and there are not a few here today. But to make a public acknowledgement inflected by personal experience of the sort I understand Professor Painter to have urged us in part uh, toward in her article, Black Studies, Black Professors, and the Struggles of Perception in the Chronicle of Higher Education last December, which is exactly the, exactly the sort of acknowledgement different only by degree that brings us together today. I share with everyone the most profound regard for the unwavering intellectual boldness and critical erudition of Claudia Tate, whose work from black women writers at work to domestic allegories of political desire and psychoanalysis and black novels I have followed beginning in 1985 when I wrote uh, with her authorial help one of my very first freshman compositions at Washington University in St. Louis on Professor Toni Morrison's novel, The Bluest Eye, to my senior honors thesis at WashU on gender politics in Hurston and Walker, to my dissertation and forthcoming first book on black masculinity, both of which owe significant debts to the insights of domestic allegories and psychoanalysis and black novels. It is to psychoanalysis and black novels pointedly I want to look towards today, and still more pointedly to its criticisms of Richard Wright, whose novel Native Son I take for the locus classicus of the problem of the black masculine in African American letters. I have called black masculinity a problem in this context because the terms black and masculine tend to operate as mutually exclusive signifiers in the modern period without black men seeming to notice or acknowledge it. Both Claudia's analytically piercing understanding of Wright's compulsive plots of violence that act out a primary sexual trauma generating murderous mother-directed rage and her lament in Rage, Race, and Desire, Savage Holiday by, Savage Holiday by Richard Wright that hardly a single one of us has formally or otherwise sufficiently attended to the psychosexual bases of Wright's violence in excess, 
These have drawn me under the critical exigency of that regret back to a reconsideration of the maternal conflict in Native Son and that phenomenon's anomalous representation. In Native Son, a questionably cathartic psychodrama of repressed rage at the black mother, I want to argue, is acted out in the pale light of Mary Dalton's bedroom on the fateful night of her murder between bigger and perhaps surprisingly the unlikely surrogacy of Mrs. Dalton. A surrogacy made imaginable to us by Claudia's gesturing towards the private surplus representation of ostensibly white constructions in black writing. Cast according to a conspicuously Freudian sketch of a mythic archetype, the maternal conflict is enacted in the in a, I'm sorry, cast according to a conspicuously Freudian sketch of a mythic archetype, the maternal conflict is enacted in the castrative menace of Mrs. Dalton's medusan face and searching hands poised to uncover bigger alongside Mary's bed. Claudia's discerning remark that the gratuitous and compulsive violence depicted in Wright's fiction, quote, seems as threatening as looking into the face of the Medusa, in other words, turns out to be, in the specific context of Native Son, more dramatically right than possibly she knew. In a manner extending from Claudia's reading of Savage Holiday, in other words, and more generally following her thesis that, quote, we can illuminate the manifest racial meaning of the prominent texts by canonical black writers by probing the latent content in their corresponding non-canonical works, end quote, I want to suggest from the classical Freudian angle I am convinced owing to Claudia Wright held to that a deconstruction of the violence of the novel's two infamous murders no longer simply seems as threatening as gauging, gazing into the face of the Medusa. For bigger, that violence is a direct consequence of, already, of having already caught sight of her in the primal trauma sublimated deep in the filial unconscious that seeing her recovers. But first, a word about black writing and psychoanalysis is, I believe, proper. A few years ago, in 1995, as a matter of fact, when I first took up what I have already spoken of as the problem of the black masculine, I wrote in my very first published piece, quote, if there is to be an enduring theory of black male identity construction in the West, it will be significantly indebted to a careful synthesis of post-Freudian psychoanalysis and the epistemological work of black feminism, end quote. This I took the reverberative Freudianism in the language of Hortense Spiller's work specifically to imply. She wrote in that astounding essay, which like so much of Claudia's work, we all dig so profoundly, Mama's Baby, Papa's Baby, an American grammar book, that the, Ameri the African-American male has been touched by the mother, handed by her in ways that he cannot escape, and in ways that the white American male is allowed to temporize by a fatherly reprieve. Legal enslavement removed the African-American male not so much from sight as from mimetic view as a partner in the prevailing social fiction of the father's name, the father's law. I was not unaware then, as I am not unaware today, of the risks of such an idolization, however much revised, of black consanguity. In spite of Spiller's work, of Claudia's, 
In spite of the enduring popularity of the psychoanalytic work of Franz Fanon, a good many scholars of African-American literature and culture, as well as those of black diasporic studies more widely, today hold the systematic application of Freudian and post-Freudian analysis to black cultural production in intellectual contempt, dismissing it euphemistically as bourgeois and conservative so as not to betray the transparent reductiveness of calling it, in a word, white. To impose Freud on the sable mind, they argue, is to extend European hegemony too grievously far. Of course, this resistance to the psychoanalytic critique of black literary and cultural production is rather expectedly the inevitable upshot of a century of racist appropriations of psychoanalysis to construct a demeaning narrative of black American and black diasporic historiography. Stanley Elkin's work on slavery comes most immediately to mind. Like so many of its detractors, I would lie if I did not concede my own occasional pause at the psychoanalytic hermeneutic. While I refer you to Spiller's later work, The Permanent Obliquity of an Infallibly Straight and All the Things You Could Be by Now if Sigmund Freud's Wife Was Your Mother for two more elegant discussions and demonstrations of the limits of classical and post-Freudian criticism vis-a-vis -vis black text, it is almost too self-evident to say aloud how such lexemes as disorder, neurosis, and complex might well identify cultural contingencies, to borrow a now familiar idea from Barbara Hernstein Smith, that serve the analyst's own egoistic fantasies and, in her words, justify the exercise of their own normative authority. Such clinical language can be, we must admit, dangerously marginalizing, affecting in its worst ethnocentric formulations cultural xenophobia whenever assigned outside of the context of contingencies that established them. But it seems to me, as it has occurred to Spillers and as I read her to Claudia before me, that, quote, all dogmatic pronouncement before and despite what the subject says is precisely the way in which traditional analyses of various schools of thought have failed, including all brands of nationalist thinking as well as more informed opinions that have evolved a template of values to which the black man is supposed to conform and including, moreover, the black man as a formulation itself." End of quote. From my perspective, then, Abandoning the principles of psychoanalysis wholesale is too much like throwing mama's baby out with the proverbial bathwater. Cautiously, Fanon appears to have thought similarly, writing in the sixth chapter of Black Skin, White Masks, quote, there has been much talk of psychoanalysis in connection with the Negro. Distrusting the ways in which it might be applied, I have preferred to call this chapter the Negro and Psychopathology well aware that Freud and Adler and even the cosmic Jung did not, take, did not think of the Negro in all their investigations, and they were quite right not to have." End of quote. Fanon imagined an apposite psychoanalytic protocol under colonialism that improved upon Freud, substituting for Freud's ontogenetic perspective, itself Freud's euchring of an earlier phylogenic theory of human behavior, a sociogenic view. He writes, it will be seen that contrary to Freudian belief, 
The black man's alienation is not an individual question. Besides phylogeny and ontogeny stands sociogeny. In spite of Fanon's neologistic proclivities here, he nevertheless persists in regarding black skin, white masks as, quote, a work of psychology, quote, a clinical work, intent upon analyzing, his word, a massive psycho-existential complex, again, his words, wrought by the racialist realities of colonial relations. Moreover, critics and theorists of African-American literary production do well to recall, as Arnold Rampersad reminded us for the 90s, that not a few of the major figures of 20th century African-American literary uh, culture were keenly influenced by the ubiquity of Freudian thought from early on in the century. Du Bois, for example, uh, lamented his ignorance of the significance of Freud for comprehending the psychological reasons behind the trends of human action which the slave trade involved. And their portrayals of that condition of, I'm sorry, and their portrayals of that condition Fanon called the unbearable insularity of black identity can only be affirmed or conversely assaulted according to the principles of psychoanalysis implicated in generating them. Perhaps more important to my own undertakings is this. Inasmuch as the psychoanalytic hermeneutic is aimed at a reliable calculus of dynamic intersubjective drives and desires, and insofar as that self-same method declares the subject to emerge at precisely the moment he or she is recognized, perceived to be by an other who is also somehow the same, then for the raced figure, his or her reflection in others' eyes would seem to constitute a primary element of psychoanalytical utility to black and diasporic texts and contexts. The sort of primary function, that is, that constrains the important second glance at Native Son I pledged my time to moments ago. Perhaps Native Son's most important revelation on the psychodynamics of looking and being seen lies in the paradox that Bigger Thomas's overdetermined shadings in the novel obtain both because and in spite of the representative blindness of Mrs. Dalton. Bigger's wealthy, if charitable, employer. Mrs. Dalton's physical blindness renders Bigger a fiction, a myth to her. And yet it is because of a far more Catholic blindness, less peculiar than pandemic, that Bigger, in mounting the dim backwing staircase to Mary Dalton's bedroom, her soft white inebriated body caught in his arms, quote, felt strange, possessed, as if in the near darkness of a theater, he were acting upon a stage in front of a crowd of people, end of quote. When moments later, Bigger finds himself defenseless in a corner of the room near Mary's bed, Mrs. Dalton groping at the bedroom door, it is the terror of the Medusa's face, a figure for the perse persecutory mother writ large that gathers to itself all the symptomaticity, Spiller's term, associated with the originary trauma of maternal conflict in performance from the novel's first pages. Having lingered too long already over Mary Dalton's nubile body before Mrs. Dalton's approach, Bigger is suddenly seized by a white blur standing at the door, silent, ghost-like. Mrs. Dalton's unexpected appearance, itself spectral but still innocently white, gripped his body. Transfixed by the bed, he waited tensely, afraid to move. 
as if caught under Medusa's sinister stare, Bigger stiffened at the sight of Mrs. Dalton. Stone giving way to, to metal, however, he clenched his teeth and held his breath, intimidated to the core by the awesome white blur floating toward him. His muscles flexed taut as steel, so taut they ached. The mythological illusion is vital here. For Freud wrote revealingly, the sight of Medusa makes the spectator stiff with terror, turns him to stone. Observe that we have here the same origin from the castration complex and the tr same transformation of effect. For becoming stiff means an erection. Thus, in the original situation, it offers constellation to the spectator. He is still in possession of a penis, and the stiffening reassures him of the fact. Far and above just the stiffening, Bigger's taut body, clamped teeth, and clenched fist are a masturbatory affirmation that, despite the certain possibility of his being lynched, should Mrs. Dalton discover him lurking about her daughter's room and having uh, his member mutilated as a part of that unspeakable ritual, he is, for the present at least, still in possession of his penis. But the tenacity of that possession in the racist imaginary has been his problem all along. Entrapped by the readiness of an all-too-vivid screen of sexual trespass, peremptorily incriminating him, Bigger's torment extends from a simultaneous overabundance and failure of the visible, from the too much and the much too little, the excess and the default of a visuality Bigger knows, despite his care not to inadvertently betray his presence, will betray him, will ultimately frame him. In other words, inasmuch as the gloom of Mary Dalton's bedroom reconstructs the darkness of Mrs. Dalton's vision, Bigger is always already betrayed, since by the ineradicability of the after image of the black masculine possessing the white mind, the whole scene has been acted out beforehand in the darkness of Mrs. Dalton's mind and the minds of those blinded others her character is calculated to symbolize. This, of course, explains why uh, even though Bigger knew Mrs. Dalton could not actually see him, he, nevertheless, he was nevertheless certain that if Mary spoke, she would come to the side of the bed and discover him, discover him with a sharper faculty. If Bigger trusts Mrs. Dalton's stony eyes not to expose him, in other words, he distrusts the duplicity of that honed sixth sense Ellison conceived as a phenomenon of the inner eyes, those eyes with which racialists look through their physical eyes upon reality. Bigger's burden of spectacularity, spectacularity does not require Mrs. Dalton to see him in any physical way at all. She has inner eyes. From the beginning, Bigger had had the feeling that Mrs. Dalton could see him even though he knew that she was blind. Her face was still, tilted, waiting. Mrs. Dalton's look arrests Bigger dead in his tracks. Cornered in the white girl's bedroom, Bigger is twice trapped by architecture and image, the latter transforming the former from the place of sleep into the place of sex irreversibly. In a doubly photographical and criminological sense, therefore, Mrs. Dalton's gaze, for that is certainly what her look has in an instant become, frames Bigger and arrests him in body and being well before the Chicago police take him into their custody. She arrests him there in Mary's room on the lingering evidence of his absent presence 
and what Freud called the traces of perception, which Kaja Silverman, following Freud, describes as a flow of perception across the psyche, which far from providing a registration of the real, gets worked over in all kinds of ways by censorship and fantasy. While it is in their power to suppress the body, to cover its tracks and traces, that white men find a relay to social and political legitimation, traces of the black masculine are retained in the white unconscious permanently. And they seem to defy cover. Mrs. Dalton's visitation at Mary's door, therefore, is hardly what it appears. Only ostensibly one of her routine calls on Mary, Mrs. Dalton's haunting of the scene stands more profoundly under Wright's hand for an inescapable indictment against black men as sex consummate sexual outlaws. It stands but to reason, then, that the hysterical terror Bigger experiences in the dark remove of Mary's room should be rendered in classically castratory terms. To the extent that the castrative menace of Mrs. Dalton may recall that of the mythic Gorgon Medusa, it is with the intent, edictly speaking, of showing, as Freud wrote in the reflection Medusa's head, quote, a boy who has hitherto been unwilling to believe in the threat of castration catches sight of the female genitals, probably those of an adult and essentially those of his mother, end quote. Mrs. Dalton represents, of course, the very real threat of castration if bigger, that bigger risks looking on Mary's nakedness. Uh, and you'll remember that um, once, uh, as he's driving her home, she sits in the back of the car, uh, legs gaping, uh, and he does glimpse her nakedness. Um, in spite of uh, the fact that Mrs. Dalton represents a very real threat of castration, uh, her face according to Freud, taking the place of a representation of the female genitals, or rather their horrifying effects in isolation from their pleasure-giving ones, um, Bigger's display of his genital possession, the stiffening and the flexing of his muscles by which the erection is represented, is a defiance of the first order. I am not afraid. I defy you. I have a penis. Therefore, I am a man he would seem to be saying. He acts out a complex here that has much less to do with Mrs. Dalton than with her instrumentality as a pathogenic memory, the spectral trace of what he takes to be his mother's unmanning of him in the first edibly reverberating scene of the novel, an unmanning that occurs, it seems, at an equally ocular level of threat. I quote from uh, Wright. Bigger went to the window and stood looking out abstractly into the street. His mother glared at his back. Bigger, sometimes I wonder why I birthed you. Bigger looked at her, then turned away. Bigger walked across the floor and sat on the bed. His mother's eyes followed him. Wouldn't have to live in this garbage dump if you had any manhood in you, she said. She turned a pair of cold eyes on Bigger. Bigger, honest, you're the most no-countess man I've ever seen in all my life. End quote. Of course, hers aren't the only eyes Wright has threatening. Uh, so other, so of course, hers aren't the only eyes Wright has threatening to so utterly abject bigger that he cannot return the look. Native son is a veritable orgy of evil ocularity. But for Wright, unfortunately, and here I return to Claudia for her precise insights, the son's perception of maternal betrayal both within the nuclearity of the family unit and within the national symbology, the kick in the teeth he feels when he glimpses her nakedness, turn your head so I can dress, the mother orders, 
and imagines her sexing his absent father, perhaps sexing him to death and joyfully to a pleasurable rather than reproductive end, sometimes I wonder why I birthed you, is the first suffering. There are certain other details in the novel's opening episode that suggest Mrs. Dalton's mythologized surrogacy for the bad nigger's bad mother. Discreet tropes of castration, concealment, encroachment, and entrapment are shared between scenes, and as Claudia has so meticulously shown across works. I want to conclude, however, by suggesting that Wright's mother problem and Bigger's terror of the maternal is at root a fear of himself, of the female within. Here, Fanon, no one knows yet who Bigger is, but he knows that fear will fill the world when the world finds out. He is afraid lest the world know. He is afraid of the fear that the world would feel if the world knew. And if the world knew, I might add, by his own articulation of his own real desires for sexual or social relations. And it is precisely the trauma visited first upon the mother woman that writes work, if Claudia is correct, I think she is, is if unheroically working through, and that those others, male and female, born behind Bigger, must reconsider, confront, and work out, as Claudia and Horton Spillers at last alert us as an aspect of his or her own personhood. Those of us black literary scholars who imagine ourselves to be doing psychoanalytic criticism owe Claudia take a debt we cannot repay. And whether she receives her just desserts beyond this conference, belatedly or never, the whole wide world of Western academe owes her too. Thank you so much. Actually, um, the, the person my chair is named after, Frederick Wortham, was Wright's psychiatrist. And that was one of the things we had in common. But, in fact, this matricidal impulse was the one thing that Wortham wrote about Rice. Wright. But, in fact, I don't think that the Medusa image is confined to the mother because whose head does he cut off from the furnace? And what falls out? It's the beheaded Mary Dalton. She's the real Medusa, not the mother. And that's that's right. Claudia's point as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, so back to um, Claudia Tate reminds me a little of Madame de Stal. That is, there's a story about um, Napoleon exiling her and saying, what does that woman want? Which you can hear Freud behind there. And she, hearing about it, said, it's not what I want, it's what I think. <laughs> so what does that woman want always means to go away. And what she wanted was not to go away. And that's what work is, I think. Um, uh, this talk is called Allegory and Psychoanalysis. And 
if I have trouble speaking it, Nell Painter has agreed to take over. It's written out, so shouldn't be hard to do. <clears throat> In her book on domestic allegories of political desire, and then later in her book on black novels and psychoanalysis, she seems to be writing about completely different things. However, I'd like to say that, in fact, the two things are very related and to try to understand why and how. For one thing, she has understood that one isn't free until one is free to desire what isn't good for one. Mm-hmm. And every attempt to make you desire what is good for you, as every child knows, won't work. <laughs> okay. Almost a quarter sec- century ago, Royce Schaefer created some ripples in psychoanalytic theory by protesting against what he called its anthropomorphisms. In an essay called The Mover of the Mental Apparatus, he wrote, In this chapter, I focus on the anthropomorphism that both pervades and artificially sustains Freudian metapsychology. I identify the manifestations of this anthropomorphism and argue that it is an inescapable consequence or correlate of Freud's mechanistic and organistic mode of theorizing. Protesting against the tendency to transfer agency away from the responsible subject to another psychic entity, my unconscious made me do it. This is really a much clearer way of articulating the objection. What does it mean to say my my id made me do it? It's as if the id was an actor in there and makes me do things, whereas it's my unconscious. Um, Schaefer sees such anthropomorphisms as artificial and mechanical abuses of rhetorical fictions. I'll periodically drink water and hope that I'll maintain the voice as long as I can. Interestingly, these are the same qualities, artificial and mechanical, that led William Wordsworth to argue against the gaudiness and inane phraseology associated with the personification of abstract ideas, so basically against allegory. In his 1802 preface to the Lyrical Ballads, he wrote, My purpose was to imitate and, as far as possible, to adopt the very language of men. And assuredly, such personifications don't make any natural or regular part of that language. They are indeed a figure of speech occasionally prompted by passion, and I've made use of them as as such, but have endeavored utterly to reject them as a mechanical device of style. So both these rejections of personification imply that the real language of real men is without personification. Wordsworth rejected personification as a mechanical device of style in his quest for the real language of men. 
Schaefer rejected anthropomorphism as a disavowal of agency in Freudian and especially vulgar Freudian theory. In both cases, they find that an artifice of rhetoric has taken the place of and obscured the real. Telling the truth about the real requires a stripping away of rhetoric similar to that called for by W.E. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk. He writes, We are compelled daily to turn more and more to a conscientious study of the phenomena of race contact, to a study frank and fair and not falsified or colored by our wishes or our fears. And we have in the South as fine a field for such study as the world affords. What are the actual relations of whites and blacks in the South? And we must be answered not by apology or fault-finding, but by a plain, unvarnished tale. Du Bois thus undertakes to tell the truth about segregation at the start of the 20th century. The tale will be unvarnished by wishes or fears. Just the facts, ma'am, neither embellished nor rhetorically skewed. Yet the word that promises a lack of rhetoric is itself a rhetorical marker. The word unvarnished is taken from Othello's explanation of his winning of Desdemona, another Medusa, claiming that he is rude of speech. He tells the Duke of Venice, I will a round, unvarnished tale deliver. But of course, lack of rhetoric is what is most powerfully simulated by both Othello and Du Bois, simulated rhetorically. Both use lack of rhetoric as a consummate rhetorical move. Unvarnished is a varnish designed to be invisible. But of course, all varnishes hope to be invisible. A classical varnish calls attention to the painting it highlights, not to itself. What would the function of a varnish be that called attention to itself at the expense of what is depicted in the painting? A varnish can only be seen to the extent that it fails to disappear. So the result is it doesn't fail to disappear. And that's why people think it's unvarnished. (laughs) Some indication of the complexity of the task Du Bois has set for himself can be gleaned from his use of the word colored. The study of race relations will not be, quote, colored by our wishes or fears. But since the object of study is precisely the color line, it seems that the object of study excludes itself. In studying color, one must must strip away color. Color can only be studied by those who have neither wishes nor fears that is, those who have no color. 
the real language of men and the real agency of the subject are not so easy to convey if the science or poetics of the real includes the desires and fears of the observer. Du Bois's use of shadows and veils comes from a double register, the register of darkness and the register of allegory. Described as a dark conceit or a beautiful lie, allegory paradoxically can sometimes make vivid by veiling. Personification and anthropomorphism are also the identifying marks of allegory. Excessive rather than inadequate rhetorical representation. The real would then not be the object of representation, but either a representation obscured or an unrepresentableness represented, an unspeakableness spoken. Speaking of that. In rhetorical treatises like the one by Pierre Fontanier, <clears throat> allegory is described as follows. Allegory consists in a, proper, in a proposition with a double meaning, both a literal meaning and a spiritual meaning together, through which one presents a thought through the image of another thought, which can properly take, make the first more perceptible and striking than if it were presented directly and without any sort of veil. This quote was to get there. Without, presented directly and without any sort of veil. Du Bois's use of the image of the veil has been the occasion for much comment. But before we turn to it specifically, let's stay with allegory a while longer. In an article, I think Claudia would totally agree with this, in an article in Race, Writing, and Difference, Abdul-Jamnam Hamid, citing Fanon, called Colonial Allegory Manichaean. But I would say that all allegory is Manichaean to the extent that it's based on clear binary oppositions. Joel Feynman, in the study of the structure of allegorical desire, defined allegory as the story of the desire for structure. I am concerned with a specifically allegorical desire, he says, a desire for allegory that is implicit in the desire for structure itself. Desiring structure is not the same as desiring something like a thing. The smallest units of structure appear to be binary oppositions. Thus, no matter how complex they seem, allegories would always have a Manichaean logic. Black characters and white characters, for example, in Star Wars, let's say, would signify something that they self-evidently embody they're chosen in allegory in order to signify quickly. Black and white are not treated in this case as unknowns, then, 
but as nouns. The structure of allegory would then, in effect, be the structure of segregation. And in fact, a quick look at some classic and modern allegories bears this out in an overdetermined way, not only racially but also sexually. Pilgrim's Progress had one journey for men and a second for women, or rather, women and children. I haven't read that one. Um, in Camus, The Plague, the important women in the book either die or are expelled from Algeria so that the exploration of man is confined to types of men. It seems as though there's always sexual segregation in allegory unless sexual difference constitutes its subject, as in the romance of the rose. How to make love with a flower is one of the things allegory makes you think can happen. So Jacques Lacan can speak of urinary segregation in Western culture as the instatement of two bathroom doors separated only by sameness. So that's how people learn sexual difference at first by urinary segregation. It's the separation of the sexes, of the races, of the classes that brings all bodies into culture and not something that the separation signifies. If, as Paul DeMond suggests, allegory is the story of the failure of symbol to be what it says it is, that is, white representing something clear, let's say, then perhaps the history of segregation or secession is the failure of unity, or maybe union, to be what it, it says it is. There's something too easily said about this, however. Something that's not included in the position from which it is spoken. Something, therefore, that relies on the logic of sec segregation in order to seem to be outside it. You can tell the truth of segregation only if you're outsider enough for it to be enforced as your distance from something. The inside-outside binary fundamental to all segregation is also what's supposed to define objectivity. Many people have commented on the difficulty of establishing the location of the veil and of Du Bois's location with respect to it. Between, on, in front of, characteristic of whites or blacks, above, within, beneath, outside. In his forethought, Du Bois writes, need I add that I who speak here and bone of the bone and flesh of the flesh of them that live within the veil. I who speak here am not external to that of which I speak. The object is the same as the subject, 
but never at exactly the same time. The relation between them is profoundly divided, full of unreconciled strivings. It's the structure of racial hierarchy that has given this self-division a racial coloration. All consciousness is what Du Bois calls double consciousness. Citing Adam's words to Eve from Genesis, however, Du Bois has less consigned blacks to the role of, quote, lady of the races, end quote, than warned against celebrating the end of segregation (coughs) too soon. The biblical story of Eve coming out of Adam's rib is a reversal of the biological story of Adam coming out of Eve. The Genesis story is a denial, not an erasure of difference. So the elimination of the Gothic presence of the veil with its uncanny capital letter and its allegorical existence may not be as easy as it seems. Although such an elimination is yearned for from one end of the souls of black folk to the other, it seems it cannot be removed without doing something to life itself. In 1870, Congress passed the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution, granting black men the right to vote. The equality of all men, as anticipated in the Declaration of Independence, was on its way to becoming literalized. Less than a year later, Congress passed the first Dictionary Act, explaining how the language used in any act of Congress should be read. The word person, it said, should be understood to include associations and corporations, not just natural persons. In other words, just at the moment the equality of individuals becomes law, corporations become persons. Is this an accident? Doesn't it seem designed to counteract the redistribution of property that the new rights should entail? If a corporation can function as a person, the law nevertheless reserves the right to look beyond the rhetorical entity and investigate the natural persons that compose it. This is called, believe it or not, piercing the veil. The veil of artifice is stripped away, revealing the real behind it. The only problem with this structure is that the aggregate of the corporation component parts doesn't function like the person, the corporate person once was. When Congress, say, passes a law, maybe the Independence, the 15th Amendment, or the Dictionary Act, its inner conflicts or divisions, its unreconciled strivings are artificially forgotten in favor of the agency 
conferred on the corporate body by the fiction of unity. So, for example, we say that the last presidential election was decided by the court, even though we're well aware of the divisions and uncertainties such a formulation covers over. Paradoxically, then, the more democratic a society, the more subject it is to the agency of fictions of unity, that is, to the rule of personification. So we find ourselves unwittingly back deep in the very thing Wordsworth was inveighing against. But as Steve Knapp describes it, personification of abstract ideas was a source of nervousness. Even among the Enlightenment writers, Wordsworth thought he was writing against. Samuel Johnson, for example, says, quote, this fairly long quote, I'll take a drink. Milton's allegory of sin and death is undoubtedly faulty. Imagine having the chutzpah to criticize Milton. I love that. Milton's allegory of sin and death is undoubtedly faulty. Sin is indeed the mother of death and may be allowed to be the portraits, portraits of hell. But when they stop the journey of Satan, a journey described as real, and when death offers him battle, the allegory is broken. That sin and death should have shown the way to hell might have been allowed, but they can't facilitate the passage by building a bridge because the difficulty of Satan's passage is described as real and sensible and the bridge ought to be only figurative. So that's why the allegory is faulty. Something is too real and something is supposed to be figurative. So Knapp comments, allegorical personification, the endowing of metaphors with the agency of literal persons, like the corporation, was only the most obvious and extravagant instance of what Enlightenment writers perceived with the mixture of admiration and uneasiness has the unique ability of, po- of poetic genius to give the force of literal reality to figurative inventions. More important than the incongruous presence of such agents was their incongruous and contagious effect on the uh, ostensibly literal agents with which they interacted. They shouldn't meet. It's just such a contagious effect that is produced on the ostensibly literal men who are forced to interact with the uncanny figurative veil in Du Bois's text. The veil enters and exits the stage of history accompanied by something like the theme from Jaws as if it were an independent character. It's not something that simply covers over 
or divides or blinds men. It's also an external reality with which they interact. It's not a fantasy, but a reality. But it's also a fiction. Du Bois has succeeded in describing what happens when fictions take part in real life. In other words, his search for the real is real to the extent that it pierces the veil, not of a fiction, but of the literal. Something like this is, in fact, what makes psychoanalysis possible. When Freud discovered that the childhood scenes of incest that his parents were his parents, his patients were <laughs> the I'll go home now. His patients described to him were not always real. He didn't simply discard them. He took them as evidence of a different kind of reality, one to which he could no longer function as exterior. In other words, he found himself colored by them. That is counter-transference. He could no longer be objective. He took them as evidence that he didn't know what the real was. Later, psychoanalysts treated Freud, Freud's psychic rhetoric as if it were real, which is why Schaefer was not wrong to question it. By telling a plain, unvarnished tale, not just about the reality of fiction, but about the inadequacy of concepts of what counts as real, Du Bois, too, makes it impossible for any reader to escape the color line. The unreconciled strivings that almost tear asunder that one dark body don't allow for the seduction of visibility that fallaciously stabilizes them between, behind an image of racial identity, that is, doing without the veil, or presenting without any fiction. It is the oneness of the body that is the originating and alienating fiction. Far from being the real and the literal, the human body remains for all of us a dark conceit indeed. We have just a few minutes before uh, we turn this over to Professor Daphne Brooks. So if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, uh, please stand up so we can get you the microphone and tell us who you are. Seeing that there are no questions. Seeing that there are no questions, actually, that's going to let us stay on time. So I'm going to ask you to thank this panel, and I, I will ask uh, Professor Daphne Brooks to come and take over the program. Do we leave? Or? Yeah. Okay. We leave? Okay. Because there may be people wanting to come. Okay. Good afternoon, almost evening. It's great to see everyone here. And um, I want to actually take a moment to thank the organizers. I know 
Professor Palmer will be doing this as well. But again, this is a wonderful gathering. And having just arrived at Princeton um, this past September, but having long been affected by the work of Claudia Tate, it's a real honor to be here today. Um, so as we come to the close, to a close this afternoon, um, the symposium organizers wish to allow time, actually, for several individuals to come forward and to share their thoughts on the many, 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 many ways in which Claudia Tate has shaped and informed uh, their lives and their work. Um, so this particular session evolved in part out of the enormous response um, that the symposium organizers received from numerous colleagues and students and former classmates of Professor Tate's who, of course, attested to um, the long-standing and long-lasting influence um, that she's had on their lives, both inside as well as outside of the academy. And so, although we recognize that this kind of a session in which people are given a space in which to express and acknowledge the meaningfulness of another scholar's work and life in relation to their own is a bit unconventional for an academic gathering, we view this session um, as an opportunity to put Professor Tate's theories regarding the vibrancy of black women's cultural production into further practice. That is, we might think of this session as following, of course, the lead of Claudia Tate's Black Women Writers at Work in that we hope that by sharing our thoughts and reflections on the endless service and activism and mentoring of Professor Tate, we will again be reminded of the necessity of publicly and actively recording and consistently acknowledging um, the value of black feminist intellectual and scholarly work. And so to synthesize and really to summarize um, the numerous cogent remarks that have been made today, um, we can and should be talking about how, how we work, why we work, um, and who are the figures that have made it possible um, to pursue the work that is so vital to us all. And I kept thinking about this um, quote of Barbara Christian's that I wanted to share very quickly um, because I think it has such relevance for what's been discussed today um, in, in her piece from over a decade ago from changing our own words. Um, she, she reminds that it was ordinary black women, women in the churches, private reading groups, women like my hairdresser and her clients, secondary school teachers, typists, my women friends, many of whom were single mothers who discussed the bluest eye or in love and trouble with an intensity unheard of in the academic world. And so what's exciting about today is to think about the ways that we can also, as all of our panelists have reminded us um, discuss the work of academics and scholars such as Claudia Tate with the same kind of passion and to pass those words on. Um, so with that said, a number of people wish to be here for this extraordinary event. Um, they were unable to attend. So we would like to share um, the comments of one of, first, I'll share Professor Tate's former students who could not be here, um, but who was kind enough to send in a statement that she's asked to read for this occasion, and then I'll ask the other um, participants to come forward and um, share their thoughts as well. So um, these are the comments of Dr. Hazel Arnett Irvin. Um, she is an associate professor of English at Morehouse College, where she teaches courses in African-American literature, and currently this year she's a visiting Fulbright scholar at the University of West Indies in um, Barbados. When history of the critic 
of African-American literary art is written finely, it may be recorded that for Claudia Tate, the role of the critic was to deepen, is to deepen an appreciation of the aesthetics of black women's text. Let it be said that her tools as critic were not the history of ideas, bibliographies, or reading lists, but the text itself, its language, its context, and even sometimes the traces of emotional and cognitive meaning left behind in print. Let it be said that Tate has been an excellent example of what happens when critics of African-American literary art step outside of themselves and trust the story. For it is for Tate, um, it has meant the insightful book reviews that often read like well-researched articles and the fine and scholarly works, domestic allegories of political desire, psychoanalysis in black novels, and black women writers at work. I am Dr. Tate's former student and former research assistant during her tenure at Howard University in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Since those years, I have gone on to publish books in African-American literary criticism and critical collections on Anne Petrie. But the truth is that in every proposal that I have submitted to publishers, it has been significant to me to mention that I trained under Claudia Tate. Why? Her tools for analyzing and writing critically about African-American literary art became my tools. Her vision for wanting to discuss African-American literary art as art of the people became my vision. Her position on the responsibility of the critic is one that I embraced as well. It is not enough to want to be a popular critic um, of African-American literary criticism. As learned from Claudia Tate, I want to produce critical works of substance, works that will sustain generations of young and budding scholars to come. I do not question if in the future emeritus scholars would agree that Tate has earned a place in the annals of African-American arts and letters. She has. I only hope that recorders would not forget to recognize, recognize that Claudia Tate is a critic who gives us uh, scholarly methods for examining, celebrating, and preserving the aesthetics of African-American literary art. And because of her scholarship, readers of African-American literary art, students, teachers, scholars, critics, and others are better off. So let's... Um there are several other people here today. Nellie McKay, um, Donna Jones, Jennifer Jordan, and Tara Wallace, who um, should come forward now and share your thoughts with us. I hope what I have to say is both personal and representative of the feelings that uh, people in Washington and Howard have about uh, Claudia. Claudia Tate is that rare human being who is the consummate thinker and a dedicated doer in the world. She was a faculty member in the English department at Howard from 1977 to 1989 and our chairperson from 1988 to 89. During those years, Claudia inspired us through her intellectual gifts and her determination to make the world work better. 
Claudia began her publishing career at Howard with her book, Black Women Writers at Work. Recently, when I keyed her name into Google, I got 506 hits. And an amazing portion of which were quotes called from this book of interviews and pasted into numerous websites dedicated to those women whom Claudia actually encouraged to talk about their craft. This book was only a beginning for her. She is a woman who loves her work as a scholar. Before the metaphorical ink dried on one book, she had begun another. She also manages to communicate her joy and discovery and thought to those around her. While at Howard, she joined with colleagues to form a group called First Draft, which met at our homes. And though we managed to eat, drink, gossip, and laugh a lot, we criticized and encouraged each other in the production of a sizable number of articles and books. We remain quite proud of whatever input we have had in Claudia's scholarship, which has helped create whole new areas of critical inquiry. Given her honesty and insistence on speaking her mind, <clears throat> Claudia seems the last person in the world to join the administrative world of any bureaucracy, especially one as special as Howard's. <laughs> but she was a great chair who knew how to listen to others' concerns, who kept the trains running on time, and who negotiated the labyrinth of egoism, last-minute requests for reports, and endless meetings with grace. For despite her tendency to tell it like it is and to aim for the heights, there is nothing quixotic about her. Like all great leaders and achievers, she has a keen sense of the doable. A lot of people have never met the real Claudia, a paradoxical mixture of bluntness, shyness, pride, and generosity. But we would like for all to know that behind that pure intellect and crisp manner is a wonderful daughter, mother, sister, and friend. Claudia, we love you and cherish your clarity and your courage. I'm Tara Wallace from George Washington University, where Claudia taught from 1989 to 1997. Um, of course, contributions um, of that sort are said to be measurable, and they are. But in some sense, Claudia's contribution at GW is entirely quantifiable. When she came to us, she was our only specialist in African-American literature, teaching one or two courses. Uh, we now have four, which I think shows that, well, first of all, it shows that it takes four people to fill Claudia's shoes. <laughs> um, but it also speaks to the way in which Claudia, during her years at GW, um, 
got, got students, faculty members, and even, amazingly, members of the administration interested in expanding a field that we decided was important in part because of Claudia's prodding and her, um, and her model. Um, so that was a, that was a very big contribution. Um, for, uh, at one point, about halfway through her time at UW, Claudia took over as the director of our graduate program. She looked at the program and found it not good. <laughs> and so typically set out at breakneck speed, um, but with all due respect for a couple of people, to, um, to fix it. By the time Claudia left the, the directorship of the graduate program, it had rigor, it had purpose, it had a better quality of student and a much better quality of faculty teaching in it. So thank you for that, Claudia. Um, our students still talk of Claudia, even the ones who have who have never met her, they still talk of her because they have heard other students talk about how she can galvanize students to work faster and better, to produce um, work at a clip that they didn't think they were <laughs> capable of. She did that to all of us, in fact. Hurry up, she'd say. Um, and the students still talk about Claudia's effect on their intellectual capacity and, and their discipline. So thank you for that. And Claudia, we're all wearing a lot more blue denim. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Donna Jones and I'm an assistant professor at Stanford University now, but my first job was here at Princeton and um, Professor Tate, Claudia Tate, was my senior colleague and a newbie like me when I came to Princeton. Um, so I am here just in a sense to testify, um, and which is odd because I was raised Roman Catholic, so testifying <laughs> I, I immediately interpret as confession. So if, I'm seemed, if this seems very intimate, it is, because I'm also in confessional mode since I really don't know how to testify um, very well. Um, <laughs> But, um, the, the, and I'm here to testify about the greatness of, of Claudia Tate's intellect and the greatness of Claudia Tate as, as, as a mentor. She was really, she, you, are a one, you were a wonderful mentor and still are a wonderful mentor. You're an example. Um, uh, when I came to Princeton, if anyone, um, is a, uh, an assistant professor who knows Princeton well, there's a bit of a divide. There's an upstairs, downstairs. It's very, it's very, uh, Edwardian in that respect. Um, and, um, Claudia Tate was the first person to come down to the basement for, to visit me. Um, and, and knew where my office was. Now, I know, and I have to admit, you weren't just looking for the bathroom, but you did. You found me, and it was great. Um, one of the most wonderful things as well is that Claudia is, uh, was an amazing mentor insofar as, uh, she's someone who just the sheer production um, and, and volume of production that you're, you're, you're that you, you that you've done over your career and that you are still producing is amazing. And I th this is a, something I would like to say in, in terms of to what Hazel was uh, and and uh, and Ducille were talking about in terms of generation. I think we are a little bit. Um, too quick to think of generation as something that is um, uh, uh, generations as things that are distinct, cut up, 
But it's it's really it's 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 a it's a total total thing, a total entity. We're all coexisting. We're all coeval. And the most wonderful thing about one's mentors is that they're producing, and we are watching you produce. So as I am sitting at home right now, I'm on leave writing my book. I'm always thinking of you, Claudia, and I'm always thinking of your work, particularly your writings on modernism, which have have really inspired me. Um, two things about I guess your work that have really inspired me the most: psychoanalysis in the black novel. It was a really, it was an eye-opener as someone who uh, has more or less consigned myself to the role of the historical materialist. You know, I was going to find rhetoric, structure, language, history. Um, some, uh, a complex and yet just, just crystal and beautifully clear observation that black literature and psychoanalysis opens up this deep interiority. Um, this interior world, which actually, when you think about it, has so long been denied. Um, and so psychoanalysis gives language to that, gives us a way of mapping it in all of its beauty and all of its, in, often its very disturbing and florid nature. Um, and Claudia, your work just blew my mind when I read it for that, for that reason. And the way you picked up on this in, in your, 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 your current works on modernism was really remarkable. And in terms of domestic allegories, I've, um, I've pretty much memorized that text because when I was teaching <laughs> 20th century African uh, American literature, um, the students would often say, well, why don't you just get Professor Tate in here? I felt fine, of course. Um, I hope you didn't think of it as an act of <laughs> plagiarism of basically reading your book aloud, saying if you want to know the 19th century and African-American liter- uh, women's writings, well, office, of, uh, I guess it was 50, I'm not sure, 51, office 51, please go talk to Professor Tate. Um, I'm just a surrogate. Um, so again, Claudia, thank you so much. And um, as if if I am operating as a spokesperson for a, a younger generation of scholars, your, your, your presence and work is invaluable. And we love you. Nell Painter uh, mentioned that Claudia, both Nell Painter and Beverly Bruce, who is sitting down here, and Claudia and I were in graduate school at the same time. Um, Not trying to be very competitive, because I'm hardly a competitive person. Um, I suspect I could claim knowing Claudia first. My relationship with Claudia separates from both Nell's and Beverly's in that Claudia and I were in the English department. Nell was in history and Beverly was in anthropology. We arrived in graduate school together. I'd like to say the same day. What was most interesting, looking back on our history now, is that in fact, we belonged, we were part of the first cohort group of African American women uh, at Harvard, first of all, but also in the English department. And in the English department, there were four women in that group and one man. As the years have gone by, 
Claudia and I have become, uh, not by any will of our own, but by circumstances, a sort of two-person sorority. A two-person sorority because of the four women who entered with us, the two of us have continued on to have full careers as academics. Uh, I want to say quickly that the others did, did get their PhDs as well, um, but did not pursue full academics for full careers. So this small, in this small sorority, I claim a special space. But I don't necessarily want to talk about myself in those terms as much as I want to tell Claudia um, or to tell you, and I'm sort of going to pick up on a couple of things that were said earlier by Hazel, Hazel Carby and by Anne DeSille and by Mary Helen Washington, um, the echoes of what it was like to be in graduate school with Claudia, where we were all very scared, um, very much in need of each other because we felt very isolated um, and had to be very supportive of each other. And so that's the story that where it began for people like Claudia Tate and for people like me um, because we had each other. And I would like to say in front of this audience that Claudia was one of those people who made graduate school bearable and one of those people who essentially grounded me. And I have a very particular anecdote to tell about that grounding. Uh, we had been talking, Claudia and I had been discussing the situation of the number of our white male peers in graduate school in the English department at that time who in fact did not remain to finish their PhDs. The attrition rate was pretty high. It was much higher in terms of the percentages of whites and particularly white men who left than it was of African-American students. And Claudia and I were discussing this one day, little knowing that we'd become, I'd revisited it on this platform today. And she said to me, you know, they can leave. We can't. We don't have the luxury to leave. Think of what it would be like to go home and tell your grandmother who scrubbed floors so that you might be here, we might be here. Think of what it would mean to go home and tell your grandmother that you didn't want to stay at Harvard because it was too hard. It was a profound statement and Claudia may long have forgotten it but it was one that I have never forgotten because it meant something so fundamental to me on that particular, at that particular time in my life that there was a responsibility that we had 
And the responsibility was not only to ourselves. The responsibility was that we had had an opportunity and a privilege that many people have never had, had never had, and will never have, and that we were responsible for making sure that we carried through with that responsibility. Claudia Tate still grounds me. And this is another little story that um, I will sort of end here with. Sitting on my desk and sitting on every working desk that I have ever had since I completed my PhD in 1977 is a clear, clear, lucite coffee cup. That coffee cup belonged to Claudia Tate when she was a graduate student and we were both working on our dissertations at the Du Bois Institute at Harvard University. Claudia was finished a few months before I was and left the Institute. And she left behind her in her carol this clear lucite coffee cup. I happened to be a pack rat. <laughs> I looked at it and I thought, well, this is good. This is useful. And my mother always told me that my grandmother always said, you never throw anything out until it begins to smell. <laughs> well, the coffee cup wasn't smelling and didn't have any prospect of smelling in the future anytime soon. So I picked up this coffee cup, transferred it to my own desk, and immediately filled it with pens and pencils. If you visit my office today, sitting in the very front of my desk is Claudia Tate's coffee cup, full of pens and pencils, and consciously and unconsciously, it means that Claudia is there, continuing to ground me, continuing to provide something that's very worthwhile in my own life and my own career. I was telling Nell Painter this morning, I told her this little anecdote this morning, and I was telling her that I generally say to everyone who comes in the office, since it's the first thing sitting on the desk, and if they want to use a pencil, they grab, they go for that first. And I always say to them, try it out first, not all of them work. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm sure there is something about um, what's there, working and not working, but the coffee cup is there. And uh, I feel very privileged today to be able to speak from this platform and to say that uh, in terms of the stories that go before, uh, the stories that made it possible for African-American women scholars in our field 
young African-American women scholars now to be able to do what they have to do come out of these stories, and this is just one of the stories that there is. My special feelings towards, towards Claudia um, Francis Foster told me last evening was because Claudia and I were littermates. <laughs> I want to thank everyone who, uh, for um, giving me the privilege to speak. I want to thank Claudia and her parents um, for being here and to say that your presence and your, to her parents, that your presence in her life has obviously been the great blessing of her life. She has been a great blessing to those of us in the academy who have come in contact with her. And I want to thank the people at Princeton, all those at Princeton who participated in making this possible. Perhaps we are all littermates. Thank you. I want to thank Nellie McKay for giving me Kleenex. I always think that if I leave my Kleenex at home, I won't cry. But that doesn't happen. This has been a very, very, very touching and important experience. I want to thank Nell Painter for having this idea. And there is no way I would have missed it. And I want to say how Claudia has touched other people's lives who, through me, I can tell you this. In August of 1999, I went to China and I was focusing on women in China. And someone gave me the name of an academic at one of the prestigious universities in China. And I called her to make an appointment, and she was very difficult. She said, uh, I'm very busy. I can see you at 7 a.m. I was on the other side of, of Beijing. The traffic is notorious. And I said, fine, I wasn't going to quibble with her about when I could see her. And so I began this odyssey, and when I knocked on her door, and people had said to me, you have to be very careful with the Chinese. They're very uh, reticent, and they're not very expressive. And when I rang her bell and she came to the door, she leaped into my arms. Oh, you're an African-American. And she was delighted because she teaches African-American literature. And so she got very involved with the conversation, didn't even want me to leave because she had all this work that she had to do. And one of the things she talked about, one of the people she talked about was Claudia Tate. And she whipped out Claudia's uh, book on uh, black women writers. And I said, but my name is there. Because Claudia, in her generosity, included me in the acknowledgments. And I remember when I read that, I almost cried because she's been wonderful. So that's one thing. The second thing is that I direct the, I'm at the Social Science Research Council, and I direct the Minority Fellowship Program, which is funded by the Mellon Foundation. Every single person who's been here today has been noted by our students as people we should have. Some of you have been at our conferences. And these students are wonderful because, and two of them are here today. Please raise your hands. Where are you? Yeah, yeah, they, oh, there are three of you, four, five, well, all the Mellon fellows stand up. <laughs> anyway, to make a, yes, please. Applause. 
while I did not stay in the academy, these young people keep me grounded in the academy. I supervise some 300 African American, Hispanic American, and Native American scholars around the country. And every year we have a conference and we bring these outstanding students together as well as the faculty members that they request. In, at Rice, the students requested Claudia Tate. She came, she was on a panel talking about what it takes to be a professor, what kind of professor you should decide to be. She took that panel to another level. She talked about what the work would require, how hard the work was, and what was very nice, Jay came along with her, and he had an excellent time. Last year, well, after the, the, the uh, conference, the students do an evaluation, which we follow, and they were all insistent that Claudia be at our last conference as a keynote speaker. And I told her that, and she said, I'm not well enough to come. And when we mentioned it at the conference at Duke, 150 students stood up and gave you a rousing round of applause and talked about how wonderful it had been not only for you to have shared your scholarship with them, but the way in which you and your son bonded. And so, Claudia, I am just delighted to be here, and I thank you very much. And we will inform our students that we were able to deliver this message to you in person from them. Thank you. This has been a wonderful occasion, a joyous occasion, intellectually stimulating on the one hand, but very intimate on the other. So I'd like to thank Claudia for enriching our lives. In fact, I learned so much today, deeply touched. And at bottom, the bottom line really, as scholars, and as human beings. It's not simply the intellectual contributions that we make. And in her case, they are magnificent, they're enduring. It's that personal capacity to touch human beings, to cross-fertilize them, to enrich them, and to make them better. That's at once, that is at once the challenge, and it's at once our eternal glory. And we thank you for being who you are and we celebrate that. Unfortunately, I must bring this to a close. I thank all of the participants. I thank all of you who have come from very, very far. It's been, as I said earlier, a wonderful experience. And we close the proceedings by inviting all of you to a party, perhaps to drink a glass of wine or two, at Professor Nell Painter's residence. And that is at 106 Fitzrandolph here in Princeton. And the festivities begin at 6.30. See you there, and thank you again. <laughs>